0: Thank you for listening to this talk, produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia.
1: Namani, Ghana yatanga yuandi. We honour the Ghana people and the lands of the Adelaide Plains. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be. This is a full house. <laughs> uh, wonderful to welcome you here tonight. My name's Rana Devonport. I'm still new. Three months, just three months and one week, mean new. I think so. Uh, so, uh, when Maria Zagala, our wonderful uh, curator of Prince Drawings and acting curator of international art um, at the moment, which is terrific, uh, came to us uh, about the exhibition and said, uh, this is, an, as we know, a touring exhibition, the Vollard Suite, very important exhibition, but what does this mean to present an exhibition like this today? particularly?" in the 21st century, particularly in light of all the the events of the last couple of years. Uh, And both in her interrogative way that she presented the aesthetics of the space, also the juxtapositions with marvellous works from our collection, and, and how this exhibition has really capped the imagination of our public uh, has been uh, terrific to unfold over the last three months. So uh, wonderful to welcome, enormous honour uh, to to welcome Professor Megan Morris and uh, the uh, fabulous Memory Holloway uh, and Maria will be steering the discussion. But thank you so much for your support this evening. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Rana. Um, Nina Mani, welcome. I'm really thrilled um, to be here on this closing weekend of Picasso, the Vollard Suite. Um, as Rana mentioned, when uh, we were planning this exhibition, uh, I was thinking, how can we approach it? And the public programs were an important part of how we um, were going to frame this exhibition. So, this evening is uh, a special evening. Um, it's really uh, the exhibition um, presents the work of Picasso and his Volard Suite, which is one hundred prints. And if you haven't seen it, uh, you can join a tour at um, seven o'clock, um, which will be um, which will lead through um, the works. Uh, Picasso wo- worked on the exhibition intensively uh, in nineteen thirty three. And uh, the works uh, were, were going to be published by Ambrose Vollard. And Vollard uh, tragically died in a car accident in uh, July 1939. And of course, the war broke out in September 39, And the prints were not released to the public through very complicated means until uh, the 50s. And so this uh, group of works were um, collected often as individual sheets, and therefore, it is actually extremely rare to have a full set. We are very lucky in Australia that the National Gallery of Australia holds a complete set of the Vollard Suite, and that is what is on display. The exhibition has come from Canberra. It has already been shown in uh, Queensland at Quagoma, and after Adelaide, it travels to Ballarat, where it opens on the 23rd of February. So this, this exhibition, these works, have not been on display for over 20 years and it's really marvellous that the NGA has let them out into the world and they have arrived in the world in this moment. And this moment, if you like, is a post-Nanette moment. Uh, and that is really what was in my thoughts when I was preparing the exhibition. I had seen uh, Nanette on Netflix, like many others, uh, and I thought, hmm, Maria, you are in this privileged position of actually curating an exhibition of Picasso's work, precisely the work that, uh, is, that he made when he was in a relationship with Marie-Thérèse Walter, the young woman who is the subject of many of the prints. and. I was affected by Nanette and wondered how could I incorporate my reception of that viewing into an uh, interpretation or how to bring the thoughts that I had of that viewing into the exhibition. It was too late to curate any extra works into it, but I thought, in fact, public programs and a series of lectures might be the way to go. and to provide the public with a reading and viewing list, which is what um, we did. So if you go to the exhibition uh, page on our website, you'll see there is an essay, Picasso and Me Too, with a reading and viewing list, where I've brought together readings that relate to blog posts that have recently come out on Picasso, often in response to uh, his ex- the exhibition on his work at the Tate um, on, Picasso, um, 1932, which was just recently held. Uh, and that kind of list of readings, uh, which includes popular writing, blog posts, and uh, articles by art historians, including T.J. Clarke and Memory Holloway, I hope forms some kind of a response, if you like, a groundwork of different ways to think about Picasso and uh, this material. When I was working on it, I thought, well, that's a curatorial contribution, but I would like an art historian to speak about what is represented in these works. And I turned to Memory Holloway, who is a professor in Massachusetts at Dartmouth and has published extensively on on Picasso, to provide a, I asked her just to to write, to say something about um, the works in the exhibition, and she, Unfortunately, could not join us, even though she wanted to, and so she has filmed a uh, a lecture for us, um, which we'll hear shortly. I also thought, responding in some ways to uh, Hannah Gatsby and Nanette and her damnation of art historians with their willful blindnesses uh, towards misogyny, what if I could get a cultural and gender studies perspective on Picasso and? Who could reflect really on what the wider issues might be at the moment in this shift in uh, our culture for the display of material that is deemed misogynistic uh, and Picasso the asshole really as he's critiqued by Gatsby so this evening is a, a is uh, it will be formed in three parts. We'll have a lecture um, by uh, Memory Holloway, then um, a lecture um, by um, Megan Morris. and then there'll be a opportunity for some um, questions from the floor um, and with um, Megan and I at the front, and we'll wrap up at seven o'clock. And as I say, there will be a, a tour if you would like to join in the exhibition. So, It's with great pleasure that I introduce Memory Holloway, who is Emerita Professor uh, in the Department of Art History. She teaches in Modern and Contemporary Art at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth, and she has taught art history in Sicily and Rome and at Melbourne and Monash Universities. She's organised exhibitions and has worked as an art critic uh, and was Commissioner for Australia at the San Paolo Biennial. She has written on the collection of Picasso's prints at the National Gallery of Victoria, and her, book includes, her books include Making Time, *Picasso Suite 347, and Open Secrets, Paula Rago. She's on the editorial board of Portuguese Literary and Cultural Studies, and recently edited a journal on art in Southern Africa. She holds a PhD in art history from the Courtauld Institute, London University. So I'm going to turn over to uh, Memory Holloway, who wishes that she would with us this evening. And she kind of is. We're, we're streaming uh, from the government website. So let's hope it works.
2: Hi, Maria. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you, all of you who are here. I wish that I could be with you in the gallery so that we could walk around and look at the Ballard Suite together. I'd be really interested in what you say about these works, especially in the light of the Me Too movement. I'm gonna talk about Picasso and Me Too and the ways that women like Hannah Gadsby as Nanette, and we really love her here, have called out Harvey Weinstein, Bill Clinton, and also Picasso for their sexist and privileged behavior. I'm not far from Boston, it's been very cold, about to snow, and I've been looking at the etchings from the Volard suite and thinking about why I find some of them to be threatening, which makes them even more so. I don't think that Picasso wanted them to be threatening, he was just making art, expressing his desire, what he wanted, and how to get that down on paper. And even when he was 80, he made pictures that claimed his virility sexual prowess, something that was important to him all his life. He equated being an artist and creativity with having sexual power. Picasso really presents us with this problem. Can we separate our aesthetic pleasure from the content of the pictures in which voyeurism and possession take over? This is a question that I've struggled with since I began looking and writing about his work, first in Melbourne, at the National Gallery of Victoria, and then later in New York. Long after Picasso died, I went to France, to the south of France, where he made another 347 etchings in 1968, at the National Gallery of Victoria, and then later in New York. Long after Picasso died, I went to France, to the south of France, where he made another 347 etchings in 1968. I thought I'd climb the fence to have a look at the house and the studio where he lived at the time. They were just up the road from Cannes in the village of Mougins. Over the fence, I went and was met with two huge growling dogs prepared to bite where he lived at the time. They were just up the road from Cannes in the village of Mougins. Over the fence, I went and was met with two huge growling dogs prepared to bite. Went back to looking at the etchings and trying to work out how to come to terms with what I saw and felt. No more climbing walls. In so many of the etchings in the Villard Suite, Picasso shows us the control that he has over line, and I'm going to give you the numbers of the Vollard Suite, so if you want to, you can go back and look at them. In this one, Mollard Suite 74, he effortlessly begins at the neck, slides over the breast, down the front of the body, to the bottom of the leg without once lifting his hand. He does the same with the head of his model, Marie Therese. Um, And you know that he was 46 when he met her. She was 18, almost 18. And here, he seamlessly draws her in profile and then suggests a creamy complexion with some of the surface texture that he he makes. He's just as confident in the funny little woman at the right, drawn in surrealist fashion in which he makes her body into a chair with arms. He abbreviates the parts of her body that are important to him. The little breasts that hang on two sticks at the left and even more that fancy cushion that opens on her lap into a vagina that opens up like a book. He draws an upward arrow that points to the cushion, just in case we hadn't noticed the cushion and its open book. He's having fun making visual jokes, comparing the nude on the left who turns her back on us to the figure on the right with her disconnected female parts, but a woman but Picasso was not just a model, though she was also that. She was the object of his desire, and this is where the trouble begins. In Villard Suite 42, we see an example of one of the many etchings in the Villard Suite that have to do with looking, as this one does looking and watching. And in some, there is a voyeuristic invasion of personal space. This one shows two women just simply looking at a sculpture. They look at a head, a bust on a pedestal. One is seated and wears a beautiful diaphanous dress that is covered with embroidery. The other woman stands, though we don't see her legs or her body, and she pulls back a curtain. This seems innocent enough, but it isn't because everything that Picasso made during this period refers back to him. At the same time that Picasso was making etchings for the Volard Suite, he was making sculpture and he made a lot of them. He made them in plaster, in bronze, and he filled his sketchbooks with them. We've seen one of them in the etching. He began by looking at his model, at Marie Therese, who appears in the etchings, but in the later sculptures, not only are they about her, but specifically they become entirely about himself. You get it, don't you? Here's the bois je head, 1931. The nose of the sculpture is Picasso's penis. He's draped the penis over the model's forehead to make it stand for her nose, a big nose, according to Picasso. We might call this a portrait of Picasso's woody, or a portrait of Picasso's one-eyed trouser snake. And you can see that little hole on the left side of this bulging protuberance. Look more closely and you will see the model's delicate, sweet mouth, perfectly realized, in which Picasso acknowledges the beauty and love that he has for his mistress at the same time that he brutalized her. Here's a satyr in Volart Suite 27, who's just jumped over the balcony to come into the room where a woman sleeps. Moonlight enters from the left. A pot of flowers sits just below a piece of drapery that hangs against the wall. Now satyrs, are half man and half beast, with horse's ears and tail and horns. And they are part of the lustful, drunken woodland gods from Greek mythology, known to attempt to seduce nymphs and mortal women alike, usually with little success. The satyr here, as you already might (laughs) suspect, Picasso himself, but in another guise. He lifts the cover and reaches out to touch the sleeping woman. His hand is just under her breast. She slumbers on, her legs curled so that we can see all of her backside, buttocks and hips. And we two are looking. Of all the etchings in the Vollard Suite, Picasso worked on this one over and over. And it is beautiful quiet in this moment, finely drawn with the rich texture of the beard and head and that little wagging tail. But if we pursue a narrative, the woman may wake with a shout as she is surprised from her sleep. This picture is about touch and desire and to touch without permission. When women look and watch they do so differently as in Vollard's Suite 86. They sit passively. Here a woman watches the Minotaur sleeping behind a transparent curtain. It is though she is waiting. She does not intrude into his space. She does not transform herself into something she is not. She does not reach out to touch. She waits. The Minotaur appears in many of these etchings as it does in Vollard Suite 85. And he appears here in a drunken orgy with a naked man who toasts two women who lie about on a patterned rug. He is Picasso's half man, half bull. He is Picasso's double. Strong, invincible, powerful, all the ways that Picasso liked to see himself. He often enjoyed, Picasso often enjoyed, putting on a bull's head and playing the minotaur, which represented for him a mythical sexual power. Focusing on minotaurs makes us think about masculinity, the kind of man Picasso was. The Spaniard who projected himself as macho, and the macho male in the presence of women. Monstrosity and monstering are important in this show. From the 1930s onward, it became an important alter ego for Picasso, this monster, who knew very well that he could be a monster and above all to women. There are scenes of violence, aggression, and violation And here is a pen and ink drawing done at the same time as the etchings, 1933, in which the bull pulls the woman to him, grasping her around the back, forcefully overpowering her with his muscular back and thighs. She is blinded by his force. Her eyes are blank. And we might say that whatever identity Marie Therese had when he met her was obliterated, at least in his work. She becomes an extension of himself. She becomes a vehicle of his masculinity with a force that is brutal and a displacement. Or is this mutual sexual pleasure? In two etchings, one is, is Volard Suite 31, the other is Volard Suite 32, done in April, one day after the other. Picasso again attacked the topic of sexual violence. There is a tangle of limbs in both pictures and it's hard to see where the bearded male and the woman begin and end, a woman whose hands are pinned to the ground. Her head is thrown back, her legs splayed, her breast like grapefruit, rise to the edge of the picture. And we have to remember that Picasso's working on a metal plate when he's etching, and this afforded him the pleasure of scratching and gouging and of running the metal burine around the entwined bodies that scramble in the heat. That's true in both of these pictures. In Bullard's Suite, 93, The Minotaur sniffs, he gets a good smell of her, and grunts as he hovers over the sleeping woman, a longing, desiring beast pitted against an unrequited desire. Picasso was his own monster, and if he boasted about his sexual prowess, he also saw himself as a victim, blinded, and unable to find his way. This is the narrative that he presents in the achingly beautiful series known as the Minotaur Machia, especially the third one, which I'll show you in a moment. There are several of these in the show in which the Minotaur tries to make his way through darkness. You can see him sit here in the center and they culminate in Uh, a final piece, which is also similar to this one, uh, in which he gropes blindingly, led only by the hope of touch. He reaches out in this final piece toward a small girl on the left who holds the light that he cannot see. He's the victim of his own making, an artist who's blind, and blinded by his ego and the desire to control. His arm blocks the light from the little girl's candle. And while the little girl is entirely unafraid, the monster is scared to be seen. And this, as the viewer can hardly fail to notice, is a portrait that once again reads as a boastful confession. It's hard to see Picasso as a victim especially in relation to the women of his life. He no doubt saw himself that way, beneath the bull's head of his own monstrosity. He knew being a monster was both a boast and a confession. And in this etching, the minotaur is hulkingly huge at the right, and the viewer can hardly fail to notice that this is a self-portrait. His minotaurs appear in scenes both of rape and of the erotic as monsters, as victims, and sometimes as heroes. Picasso never gave up watching sleeping women and wanting to possess them. He painted as if to possess. In 1953, 30 years after he began the Vollard Suite, he painted The Shadow in which he watches the woman on the bed. He hovers in the doorway across the room. It is his shadow, so he's in two places at once. He stands at the easel, and he paints himself watching. He sees from the spot where he is, and he sees himself. This, I think, is essential to our understanding of the artist who watches himself watching others. There's someone in the house and he does not have permission to invade our private space. And here finally is my dilemma. I hate Picasso's male chauvinist vision of women. I detest the privilege that he takes as his right. And yet I have to admire how brilliantly he puts it all together in these works.
0: Our next speaker is uh, Megan Morris, and we're really delighted that she agreed uh, and took us up on this invitation. Um, She's Professor of Gender and Cultural Studies at the University of Sydney, and before that she spent 12 years as Chair Professor of Cultural Studies in Lingland University, Hong Kong, establishing the first Cultural Studies degree in the Chinese world and studying martial arts cinema. This interest came out of her early working life as a regular film critic for the Sydney Morning Herald and then the Australian Financial Review, between 1978 and 1985. During this period, she engaged in her spare time with debates in feminist theory, publishing The Pirate's Fiance, Feminism, Reading and Postmodernism in 1988. This led to years of nomadic teaching in the USA and the publication of Too Soon Too Late, History in Popular Culture in 1998 and Identity Anecdotes, Translation and Media Culture in 2006. She chaired the International Association for Cultural Studies from 2004 to 2008. And after returning to Sydney in 2012, she chaired the Inter-Asia Cultural Studies Society until 2015. Her experiences in the Asian region led to co-editing creativity and academic activism, instituting cultural studies with MetaHure in 2012. Megan is fellow of both the Australian Academy of the Humanities and the Hong Kong Academy of the Humanities. And in 2016, she received the inaugural ACS Stuart Hall Award for Lifetime Achievement in Cultural Studies. It's with great pleasure that I welcome Megan Morris.
3: Thank you very much, Maria, and is that good? Yes, excellent. Um, I have some more formal definite thanks at the end of the paper rather than the beginning, and I hope you'll see why when I get there. Um, But I'm I'm delighted to be here. It's many years since I've been in Adelaide. I just met an old friend, Margaret Dog, down the front, Um, and it's a, a wonderful evening for me. I am not, as you've heard, um, an art critic and when I wrote this text yesterday I said honestly I have no strong feelings either way about Picasso's paintings or his life. Having had the privilege of a tour through the Vollard Suite with Maria and then heard this wonderful, wonderful lecture by Memory Holloway, I've changed my mind. I'm dazzled, um, both by the work and the complexity of the questions that the framing uh, of this event has brought to us. But normally, I like moving images. Um, I've been a film critic, as you've heard. But as an academic, I do do cultural studies, which is often misunderstood as being about popular culture. That's not all we do. But it is the case that we care about what communities and common people create as culture in different social contexts. And this includes what we call the uptake uh, of works of art. Uptake means taking up, um, responding actively, and doing something new uh, with those works of art. So I have here Picasso's. Guernica, 1937, as an emblem of this complex issue of popularity. Uh, Guernica, I I will risk saying, is probably worldwide Picasso's most famous painting. Um, And you could, if you wanted, call it a cliché. I think cliché is an extraordinarily complex phenomenon, very, very interesting. Cliches are what people have in common. They're a base ground. Now, normally when we say something is a cliche in a negative tone, we mean they're an embarrassing heritage item. You know? We recognize them. If we didn't recognize them, we wouldn't be angry and annoyed that someone wants to associate them with us. But clichés are not only embarrassing heritage items, they're common materials that large and perhaps otherwise disconnected groups of people hold in common and can work on together. And the best reworking of a cliché I have seen in I don't know how long is taking the bull by the horns. I just love that image. And then when I heard the music outside, this is exactly what I mean. If you don't know that phrase, taking the ball by the horns, and then see how it is moving out and around the exhibition and producing a new sense of pleasure and understanding between people, then you probably weren't having a drink in the courtyard just now. Now, My (coughs) second... um, brief introduction, is to say, apropos of Nanette, that I still remember the shattering impact that Kate Millett's book, Sexual Politics, had on me when I read it in 1971, at the age of 20, 21. The way she revealed the sexism in writers I'd learned to admire, uh, Lawrence, Norman Mailer, Henry Miller, in an absolutely gut-wrenching way that made me feel that their books hated me personally. Uh, It was really extremely traumatic uh, back then to read that book. In fact, I still have my copy, and I keep it in an old house I used to live in, which is at risk of bushfire. I I have never opened it. But I will never let it go, because it changed my life. So I used to spit D.H. Lawrence. I hate him. Um, the way Hannah Gadsby spits at Picasso. I became involved in feminism directly in response to this experience, and now, please remember, it is close to 50 years later since that book. I'm personally euphoric at the sheer scale of Me Too as what I call a women's uprising. I don't want to call it a revolution till there's some kind of durability that makes you feel you've won something uh, and the behaviour of Australian politicians and other men in the media makes one wonder uh, as they rush to be the first to point the finger at each other. But nevertheless, it is a women's uprising, and it links many parts of the world. Now, this is technologically enabled, and therefore uh, selective culturally and socioeconomically, but it is an uprising nonetheless. I personally never thought I would live to see that. And it's one that's at its most powerful, in my view, when it avoids the sexual puritanism that bedevils in particular in particular, Anglo-American feminism. It's instructive to trace through the fights that English Anglophone feminists have with French feminists over these 50 years, and generally with people from Catholic countries. And I think it's, Me Too is at its most powerful when it focuses squarely on the workplace as a key site, where along with the family, um, discrimination, disadvantage, and violence against women is produced and reproduced. At the same time, because it has been 50 years, this time around the mulberry bush of what Juliet Mitchell called the longest revolution, that of women, again 50 years ago, I'm moved by how very slowly things change, how much we need to repeat ourselves, but yet how they do actually change. Now, I'm not sure, myself, that Hannah Gadsby's spray at modern art in Nanette, and I'm going to just stick to that part of it, helps that change along much. But this is an image of something that, at the level of an individual performance artist like Gadsby, actually doesn't worry me very much. The idea that feminists or queers, people of color, indigenous, are taking pot shots at the great white males of the Western tradition in order to disappear them. As Stalin so famously did with his enemies, I love this particular example. You can find more online where Yezhov was executed in 1939 and he vanishes from the photo. Stalin did a lot of these. Uh, Lenin actually began this type of retouching. And um, as people say, you can only quail at what they could have done with Photoshop. And sometimes, if you're just reading the media, it can feel a bit like this. When you pick up yet another story uh, of an artist, or an actor, or a public figure um, being denounced for his, or much more rarely, uh, though it does happen, her crimes. Pablo Neruda is the most recent case that I've read about. But fame and respect and influence are profoundly institutional products. Individual critics or performers alone do not have Stalin's other powers uh, to disappear people, but institutions do. And it's true also, I think, that calling out culture and cyberbullying live or living people on social media even perhaps museum curators, uh, is a new ecology of threat, a very complicated one that we're just beginning to come to terms with. And when institutions move to do this, then I think difficult questions do arise uh, about what the implications of the relationship between the social media ecology uh, and then public participation in culture are becoming. Mainly for me though, I think that the best and most powerful campaigns over 50 years from feminists have been about adding people to the picture, not so much subtracting them. And of course you can't, as we always used to say, just add women. When you add women to the history of art, you change the composition. The whole thing needs to change, including criteria of value uh, and ideas about practice. So I still think that this is one of the most powerfully transformative forces uh, that feminism brings to the world of arts and culture generally. But let's take two quotes here. This this is about adding. Um, That's Hannah Gadsby's famous sort of snit at uh, Picasso's little doodles. Um, Please go and see these doodles afterwards if you haven't. Um, How about you take Picasso's name off his little paintings and see how much his doodles are worth at auction? Now, in an article that I hope to come back to at the end, a recent queer feminist uh, blogger and activist, Yasmin Nair, objects to this reduction of artists and artistic endeavor to individualize patterns of uh, behavior. And this is the line of thinking that I want to follow up. Because um, if you really do, follow that the man and the work problematic very narrowly which i don't think memory holloway does at all you do end up with the most conservative art museum emphasis on the biography and the work gatsby's criticism of the value of the artist's signature and thus the role of the market in creating value has actually i'm sure most people know is a commonplace of museum discourse precisely, at least since Duchamp exhibited a urinal called Fountain and signed it Armat in 1917. And other artists like Daniel Buren have built their careers around this paradox. Um, But if you have never thought about that before, and this is the wonderful thing about Netflix, then obviously it's a valid point. But in the spirit of very loosely speaking, and you'll see how loose I'm going to get, community arts, I want to add some people's Picassos to this stark individualizing view of the man and the work. And I have two examples to offer. And the first one is in the realm that we might normally think of as community arts. The second one uh, is not. My first example is the International Kids Gernika International Children's Peace Mural Project, begun in 1995 on the 50th anniversary of the end of World War II by Art Japan Network, a cultural organisation in Kyoto. I owe my awareness of this entirely to hearing a talk by this wonderful anthropologist, Hirokazu Miyazaki, who was born in Tokyo, studied in Canberra, uh, and is now at Northwestern University. Now, according to his website and my conversations with him, his research is all about a very simple question. How do we keep hope alive? And his first book, um, called The Method of Hope, was a study of the 100-year-long, the century-long hope of the (coughs) Suvavu people, um, who are the descendants of the original landowners of Suva in Fiji, their hope to regain their ancestral lands. The second study was a completely different culture. It was a team of Japanese derivatives traders at major (coughs) securities firms in Tokyo. But he asked the same question. How do you keep your crazy hope that these these economic experiments are going to end up wonderfully um, how do you keep that alive now last year uh, he was appointed peace correspondent by the mayor of nagasaki he does a lot of work in the archives of nagasaki and i heard him explain his current research on the history of citizen diplomacy for peace and the world without nuclear weapons Clearly, a key issue in Nagasaki. Citizen diplomacy means people to people, town to town initiatives between local governments and community groups. Something that more chic avant-garde people might find really daggy. Sort of town stuff, sister city stuff, this type of thing. But he's studying this doll exchange in 1927, and the doll exchange was originally a political pushback to the American Immigration Act of 1924, which banned Japanese immigration to the USA. It's quite topical in the light of Trump's Muslim ban. Uh, Sydney Gulick, a former missionary, um, organized for a gift of 13,000 dolls to be sent from American children to Japanese children. And Japan, overwhelmed at this quantity and unable to match it, commissioned its best doll makers, because doll making is a fine art in Japan, uh, to send back 58 dolls representing different Prefectures and territories, and the one on the right um, has had a really important afterlife recently because Ibaraki Pre- Prefecture was affected terribly by the 2011 earthquake and tsunami in Japan, and the Milwaukee Museum brought its doll out of storage, a bit like the volad Suite, perhaps, uh, and. Used it as a focal point for donations and expressions of support from ordinary citizens of Milwaukee to this part of Japan. And these things actually matter in disasters. They move people, they give them hope. That's the background. Kids' Guernica is a more recent experiment in citizen diplomacy. The mural. Project was launched, as I've said, in 1995. And in 2000, uh, an international committee was established. And in its first 10 years, this involved more than 10,000 children in almost 40 countries. The main purpose, obviously, is to foster peace consciousness. um, But the task the children are set is to produce uh, painting on huge canvases of the same dimensions as Guernica, which is really big, but that's, that's their formal uh, goal. It includes workshops and exhibitions. The children mostly work with established artists or with teachers. And this is art practice understood as learning, as involvement, and as a reaching out to strangers. It's a third t- term which takes us past the man and the work and which mobilizes the work into the production of more culture, more art in a communally meaningful way and with meaning that that community has uh, set for itself. I would call this uh, an aspect of the contemporary reception of Picasso's practice, as our program uh, puts it. And it's still going on. This one here was done by sixth graders from an elementary school in Kyoto uh, to be sent to Paris. And they insist that all of these are movable murals, because again, with a topical point referring to Trump, the they say, that walls divide people, and this project's objective is to overcome separation. This one from Northern Ireland, 2013. I really like this, make tea, not war. And this one from uh, Ubud in Bali in 2014. There are many, many, many such images. Now, it's hard to express scepticism, even if you're sitting there feeling it, about colourful community projects involving children and world peace. So my second example is more edgy. The community aspect is more subcultural. It's a queer film cult. And my claim of a link to Picasso's practice in the light of Nanette is much more eccentric. Some of you won't like it at all. I do. Uh, and I'm going to make this claim. And it also brings me a little closer to the issues raised by the volo Suite. <clears throat> With my uh, colleagues at Sydney, Melissa Hardy and Kane Race, I'm working on a book coming out of a symposium that Melissa organised in 2015 to mark the 20th anniversary of the release and catastrophic box office failure of Paul Verhoeven's scandalous film, Showgirls, 1995, same year as uh, the beginning of Kids Guernica. We are, all three of us, with the feminists and queer critics and communities who love this film. Um, We're in a minority, most critics still don't. But released on DVD and through group viewing phenomena where people know the dialogue and interact with the film, it has over time become a popular success. Following on from Verhoeven's Sharon Stone movement uh, moment with the vagina-flashing incident in Basic Instinct three years before, Showgirls was a film that featured full nudity, female nudity, of course, lap dancing, a sex scene in a swimming pool that was widely voted the worst sex scene of all time, Overt expression of lesbian desire by the divine Gina Gershon, who makes even my cisgendered heart pound, and a brutal, if sensitively filmed, rape scene. Now, what does sensitively filmed rape scene mean? It's very practical. It means, first of all, that the camera does not occupy the point of view of the rapist. Uh, It's a very common mistake well-meaning filmmakers make. They are looking down at the terrorised face of the woman. This film doesn't do that. But the second thing it means is that it doesn't actually represent the rape at all. It shows us the preliminary movement, and then above all, the impact afterwards on the body of the young woman who staggers out bleeding to disrupt a glamorous Las Vegas party. So all of this, the filmmakers insisted, was in the interests of realistically portraying the exploitation and the violence suffered by dancers in the Las Vegas casino world. Um, I believe them. I think it's an extraordinary film about the political economy of sex and sexism in a service industry. And I'm going to cheat and say that my best friend, was a she's 80 now and she was a Las Vegas showgirl and uh, we watched it with her and she said that's completely realistic that's exactly what it was, was like but people reject this um, type of realism now why do they I think the relevant point here is that the critical attack on the aesthetics of the film as the worst this or that almost destroyed the career of the star, Elizabeth Berkeley. In other words, critics, in this case, destroyed the life of a real working woman, an actress, who was playing the role of a working woman who was a topless dancer. Defending uh, Berkeley, Verhoeven said that her over-the-top acting style was exactly what he had asked her to do. And that people, particularly people in America, he said, failed to see that this was a style. It's what he called the hyperbolic style, or the exaggerated style, of this social satire derived from the German expressionist painting of the Weimar period. Uh, He thought his audience might recognize that. Big mistake. So I've, I've made this comparison. It took me about five minutes of internet research. Um, compare this still from Showgirls on the right uh, with George Gross's panorama of 1919. Now, we could also trace this cliche of the savage, toothy, enslaved female who's smiling in capitalist hell through, I think, to some of Albert Tucker's paintings in Australia, Um, though I don't want to go there. I hate those paintings, so that's different. But it's a forced smile of the woman being forced to perform for a living. Just very quickly, if I don't want to go forward to Albert Tucker, I do want to go back to the Cubist moment, if not just to Picasso the individual, to say that this very mixed expressionist tradition, which is iconographically misogynist um, in most cases, I think, um, but also savagely descriptive of a world where fascism was rising, is enabled by the collective energies and the communal uptakes coming out of the Cubist moment. Uh, there were other images beside panorama I could have chosen, but I like this one because once it is leached of its colour by me, I just did that with a filter,
2: um,
3: I think you can see how it's pointing forward in at least some ways to Guernica uh, and the shattering horror of the Spanish Civil War almost 20 years later. Now. My last slide. I mentioned this online essay by Yasmin Nair, um, which is a very serious response to Nanette, including to those core issues that I've sidelined tonight about trauma, comedy, and the role of public storytelling by women. It's also a really, I think, profound critique of the role of stand-up comedy and the underpaying of female queer and people of color comedians uh, by Netflix, who disseminate Nanette. Now, it's Nair, not me, who chose one of Picasso's Weeping Women paintings of 1937 to express her resistance to what she calls the global aesthetic of trauma as a prerequisite for women gaining visibility and even citizenship in the world. It's not a critique of women speaking about their trauma. It's a critique of the increasing demand that if you don't have one to narrate, you're not visible. Or if you're not telling your story, then you're not a full participant in the world. Now, I've been sticking meekly here to the art history section. But I want to end by adding again uh, a point of my own to Naïr's defence here of modern art as allowing a place for the fragmentary nature of experience in life itself. She writes this in response to Gasby's deliberately, I'm sure, provocative sarcasm about Picasso having freed us from the slavery of having to reproduce believable three-dimensional reality on a two-dimensional surface. Fragmentation makes me uncomfortable, too, as a concept, if not as an aesthetic practice, as though once upon a time there was a whole perfect thing which has been broken into bits. I reject this as a proposition about my own experience of reality. But I think it's something we do learn from thinking of art as community practice in its reception, what people do with art as well as in its production, is that the very mixed and partial nature of shared aesthetic experience significantly includes moments of euphoria and joy and love between strangers. That's one of the big things art is for if you had a drink in the courtyard. Not always love, by the way, but certainly exchanges. Um, That's certainly what the Kids' Guernica project is after. But it's also what Elizabeth Berkeley received in 2015, the actress from Showgirls, when there was an anniversary screening of Showgirls, this film that had damaged her life. I mean, she did go on acting, but very in a very minor um way and this anniversary screening was held in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles and a queer self-creating community of people 4000 strong showed up to absolutely shower Elizabeth Berkeley with love and adoration and loud acclamation and cheering that goes on and on and on. It's a remarkable moment, and you can see this on YouTube, not on Netflix. Just go Elizabeth Berkeley Cemetery, bam. It's extraordinary. You no, know, it brings tears to my eyes every time I see it. Now, Berkeley's overwhelmed by this, and in her euphoria, she actually blesses the audience and says, All of you to whom this film has brought joy, I thank you. There's another path out of a trauma here. It's not better than individual storytelling. And it's not better than the hookup of multiple stories that has made Me Too so powerful. That's not what I'm saying. But I do think that the community way of producing and celebrating art creates a positive force and a quality of loving energy that no uprising can afford to do without. And in that spirit, I want to end rather than begin with my thanks to Maria Zagala, Annika Williams, and the amazing women I've met here today in this fabulous gallery for the gift of the really extraordinary experience I've had here today. Thank you.